Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. We are starting to build up a picture of dinosaurs piece by piece. This week, some new discoveries are changing our understanding of what dinosaurs looked like. The results of those elections are, at the moment, entirely unpredictable. And after Israel's fourth election in two years ended in another political stalemate, we speak to a foreign policy expert on what this could mean for the Middle East. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Gemma, I had a ton of fun the other week commissioning and editing a story about the new Godzilla versus Kong monster movie. And it was written by a paleomorphologist, someone who studies how animals are built. And she was making a prediction who would win in a fight between those two monsters. And what did she predict? So I haven't seen the movie, but she was on Team Godzilla. And she was basing this mostly on the way Hollywood was portraying these monsters. That got me thinking... Hollywood and the media we consume really shapes how we imagine monsters, but also dinosaurs. Yeah, my brain, when it thinks of dinosaurs, goes straight to Jurassic Park. That little glass of water shaking on the back of the truck, the raptors in that warehouse bit. Terrifying. What about you, Dan? What's your Hollywood dinosaur moment in your head? I think I was just a bit too young to catch the original Jurassic Parks. For me, mine was actually a little more cute. It was animated dinosaurs in the land before time. Uh, And then once I got a little bit older, definitely Jurassic Park, Velociraptors and T-Rex and all that stuff. Artists have been using the bones of dinosaurs to imagine what they'd looked like ever since the early 19th century. And I guess some of them did it really badly. In London, there's this enormous park called Crystal Palace, which is actually the site of a big exhibition in the 1850s. The Victorians were really proud of themselves and they created these sculptures of some dinosaurs. And they are so wrong. They look like these giant reptile lizard things you can still go and see them today they're sitting around a little fake lake thing it's so strange and it's funny how you just see something old and just know it's wrong but i guess it helps us to see how much our knowledge of dinosaurs has really changed though we're still a long way off to having all the answers about what dinosaurs did actually look like so to find out more about what new evidence is emerging and how our dinosaur imaginings have changed I spoke to two paleontologists who spend their time studying dinosaur fossils and bones. For Maria McNamara, as a kid in the 1980s, her dinosaur knowledge didn't come from TV or Hollywood like Gemini, but rather from her grandma. She was a big reader, was always buying books. She had a library at home, but she also was a hoarder. She kept everything. So I had books that were up to date, but I also had access to books going right back to the 60s and even the 50s when her kids were growing up. Today, Maria is a professor of paleontology at University College Cork in Ireland. And there are probably very few people on earth who know more about what dinosaurs looked like. And that's why I wanted to know about the first dinosaurs she ever saw, the ones lurking in her grandma's old books. They were green, usually, scaly, big. They didn't quite look like the ferocious predators that we know many of them were. And we certainly didn't see any small dinosaurs. So I suppose my concept of dinosaurs was pretty exclusively of large, green, scaly creatures with very little of the nuance that we have today. 
That nuance started to emerge in the 1960s during a period of time known as the dinosaur renaissance. New fossil discoveries and new research turned the scientific notion of dinosaurs on its head from large, slow-moving, cold-blooded reptiles into warm-blooded creatures of all sizes living in a diverse ecosystem with reptiles and eventually birds and mammals too. But the surge in research had created as many new questions as it answered and even stirred up some old debates. One debate was particularly hot around that time, and it had to do with the relationship between dinosaurs and birds. Were they sister groups? Did they share a common ancestor? What exactly was the nature of the relationship between those two groups? A lot of these questions hinged on feathers. Feathers had been pretty rare in the fossil record up until then, and for the most part, any fossil that had some feather was considered an ancient early bird. But then, soon after Jurassic Park first aired in 1993, a series of new findings from China changed everything. In the mid-1990s, there were some literally quite spectacular discoveries of feathered dinosaurs, of dinosaurs from China. It's called the Jehal Biota. These fossils all came from a volcanic region of China with a lot of lakes. And there are thousands of these fossils. Birds, dinosaurs, early mammals, all excellently preserved. The first paper that was published was on this dinosaur called uh, Sinusoropteryx. And it preserves some kind of brown furry stuff uh, associated with the head and the back and the tail. And when you look closely at it, it just looks like hairs, short little hairs about a centimeter long. And they were interpreted quite controversially back then as primitive feathers. There was fairly intense debate for at least 10 years about what those features were. What that paper did was really quite remarkable because by demonstrating evidence for feathers in a dinosaur, they were effectively providing direct link of the avian dinosaur relationship. And also they were showing that feathers aren't unique to birds, they actually evolved much earlier. The discovery of feathered dinosaurs certainly changes what I imagine in my mind's eye. But feathers offer so much more to paleontologists than just the costume change. Sinusoropteryx is a good example, actually. It, it was a, a small theropod dinosaur. So it's part of this lineage of dinosaurs that is most closely related to birds. And uh, it was only about a, at most a meter long. It was, you know, completely terrestrial. It was a, a runner. And we know that its feathers could not have functioned in flight because they were too short. So what was it using these feathers for? Well, if you look at the distribution of these structures over the body, they're everywhere. They're on the head, they're on the back, they're on the tail. And so because of this, it actually is much more consistent with functions in thermoregulation, in maintaining your body temperature. And it, it was a new line of evidence for when dinosaurs started evolving more bird-like metabolisms. And so we are starting to build up a picture of dinosaurs acquiring bird-like characteristics piece by piece. We call this mosaic evolution because they don't just evolve all of the pieces at once, they come bit by bit. And some of the pieces of that mosaic were really wild. 
Take the Microraptor, discovered in 1998, for example. It caused a real stir because it had feathers not only on the forelimbs, but also on the legs. So it's effectively a four-winged dinosaur. And still, there's ongoing debate about how this creature flew. It has long feathers. And what's really interesting is that its feathers have the full complexity that we see in modern birds. About half of the specimens that have been recovered have a weird tuft of feathers at the end of the tail. It's thought that maybe this is a feature used for signaling, uh, potentially by males. You know, we don't know. It's really hard to actually sex these specimens because the bones are frequently fractured and compacted during compression as they're buried. But there are dinosaurs where we're pretty sure that feathers were being used for communication. One of the dinosaurs that used feathers probably for communication was that Sinusoropteryx, the small terrestrial dinosaur found in China that first sparked that feather frenzy. In 2010, a team of researchers based in Bristol and Dublin managed to reconstruct the colors of its feathers. They did this for Sinusoropteryx using traces of the pigment melanin. The same stuff that colors our hair and makes our freckles. So they, they've recovered evidence of this pigment in the feathers of Sinusoropteryx. And what they found was it had almost certainly color banding along the tail. And when you compare with modern birds and you look at things like a zebra finch, they've got a fabulous striped tail and they use it for display, showing off fitness, advertising their quality to potential mates. So it's fairly likely that Sinusoropteryx was doing something similar. Skin color in dinosaurs is, at least for now, almost impossible to discern. But using melanosomes, granules of melanin pigment, researchers can paint a remarkably accurate color picture of the feathers, at least. We know that Microraptor, for instance, had uh, a glossy iridescent sheen in its feathers. We know that Oinchiornis, a Jurassic dinosaur, it had uh, feathers that were largely grey with some black and white stripes on the wings and a big red head crest. But while melanin is a useful hint, it's only part of the colour puzzle. Modern birds of every colour have melanin in their feathers. It's other pigments that really flesh out the colours. In the fossils, these other pigments decay away and all we get left with is the melanin. So, you know, it's like looking at a black and white, you know, TV programme. The colours you see, it's not like real life was all grey. You're missing that technicolour side of things. I'd personally give Maria and her colleagues quite a bit more credit than to say they're still stuck in the black and white world. But even if the colors they're getting aren't perfect, our knowledge of dinosaurs has certainly changed. Not only do we know that they're feathered, we also know what they used them for, probably body temperature regulation and also for communication. So initially, most of the discoveries of feathers were found in the ancient ancestors of modern birds. And this is in a group of dinosaurs called theropods. Theropods are two-legged, hollow-boned predators, like Velociraptors and T-Rex, a lot of the iconic dinosaurs. For a while, all finds of fossilized feathers came from theropods that existed late in the dinosaur era. So it really seemed that feathers were an innovation that happened very late during dinosaur evolution. But then in 2014, myself and some colleagues 
we reported complex feathers in a type of ornithischian dinosaur, let's say a distant relative of a triceratops. It's a dinosaur that has more ancestral features. It sits closer to the base of the dinosaur tree. It's called Calindodromius. It's from a site in Siberia. And it has three types of feathers. It has the simple filaments, which we've seen before in Sinceropteryx. It has uh, some weird ribbon-like filaments, which have been reported in theropods. And it has clusters of filaments. And these clusters of filaments really look like what we recognize as something like stage two in feather evolution. What they'd found was that this dinosaur, with some really old characteristics of the dinosaur family tree, had the genetic ability to produce feathers. This means that the feather gene, so to speak, must have been old. So to see how old and where it fit into the whole feather dinosaur puzzle, Maria and her colleagues looked at another, much older branch of the dinosaur family tree, pterosaurs. Many people think pterosaurs are dinosaurs because they were big reptiles that were around at the same time. But actually, they're a completely different family of reptiles and they share a common ancestor with dinosaurs. So they branched off during the early Triassic. They had wings of up to 15 to 20 meters, huge flying creatures. And I suppose just like with dinosaurs, we had thought that they were all just, you know, dry and scaly. And uh, we actually reported preservation of branched feathers in pterosaurs. And to be honest, that completely blew everyone's minds. It blew our minds. If both pterosaurs and dinosaurs have evidence of feathers, that means the genetic ability to produce feathers started way, way back in a common ancestor. Feathers, says Maria. They actually are a feature that evolved before birds, before dinosaurs that they're a very ancient feature of this group of reptiles. And because the feathers on these little baby pterosaurs were really tiny, Maria says that they couldn't have been used for flying. So the next best guess is that these reptiles used these little proto-feathers to regulate their temperature. People think feathers are all about flight, but you know, feather evolution is about your physiology, it's about your behavior, it's about where you can live. So you're looking at these different groups of organisms evolving feathers to keep warm. And that's telling us about reptiles transitioning in terms of their metabolisms. And once you change your metabolism and become warm-blooded, that opens up a lot of new habitats to you. It opens up a lot of much more active lifestyles. I don't know about you, but the idea of even a few fuzzy, feathered, warm-blooded dinosaurs running or flying around the ancient world and using colors for communication, well, that's certainly not the land of dinosaurs that I used to imagine. At this point, I'm starting to question all of the dinosaur movies I've ever seen. In those movies, all the dinosaurs are huge, and all of the iconic ones, they all kind of lived at the same time. But both of those assumptions, it turns out, are wrong. Most of those dinosaurs did not live together as one community. And so uh, Stegosaurus and Tyrannosaurus rex never lived together. They're separated by, you know, 100 million years of evolution. This is Nicholas Campione. I am a senior lecturer at the University of New England in Armadale, uh, New South Wales, Australia. Nick's done a lot of work on how big dinosaurs are and specifically how much they weigh. The body size of an organism will dictate how it interacts 
with the world around it, its metabolism. And so we can use body size to explore the evolution of dinosaurs. He told me that traditional understandings about the size of dinosaurs as these large, cold-blooded reptiles goes back to the 19th century. And it kind of has to do with human nature in a way. Who doesn't love to go find something cool, dramatic, and then show it off to the world? The first discoveries of dinosaurs were very much focused on the sensational. They were focused on, let's find the biggest thing, let's find the big skulls, let's find things that, you know, are museum pieces. And that very much framed our way of discovering fossils really early on. The technique researchers used in the 19th centuries to estimate the size of these dinosaurs was pretty rudimentary. So traditionally, the, the first methods for estimating size in dinosaurs focused on reconstructing the animal in some sort of live, I guess, a sculpture, effectively. One famous 19th century paleontologist, and I should note controversial eugenicist, named Henry Fairfield Osborne was a really big proponent of this method. He worked at the American Museum of Natural History with Charles Knight, a paleoartist. Together, they would make a little model of, say, a brontosaurus, and then use that to estimate weight and volume. And once you have that reconstruction, you dunk it in water, find out how much volume is displaced, and that gives you the volume of the model. You scale that up to the size of, of the dinosaur, and voila, you have the volume of that dinosaur. Uh, and once you have the volume, you multiply it by some assumption for body density, and you have a body mass. It was crude for sure. But the, the funny thing is that I've gone on to make a lot of comparisons between the estimates and some of the, the bones of these animals. And actually, I find that some of these original estimates were not so far off. They're definitely within the plausible range of mass estimates. This reconstruction technique has evolved quite a bit since then. Now, paleontologists use digital models rather than creating sculptures, but the principle is kind of the same. But in the last 150 years, a second approach has also been developed. This one estimates dinosaur size and weight by measuring their limbs. It really just comes down to measuring bones and then testing to see how well they predict body mass in living things. And then making an argument about whether or not you think dinosaurs would have followed those same patterns. So in, in the mid-80s, there was a paper written by Anderson, uh, Dale Russell, and they were the first ones to propose, looking at living mammals, a relationship between the circumference of the humerus and the femur. This approach was at first criticized. This was because the sample of living animals that they used to build the formula was originally pretty small. So the work that I did going back now to the early 2000s was to try to test that. And so I compiled a giant data set of living animals and each one of those skeletons was associated with a body mass. Nick built a huge database of a ton of different animals. It included rhinos, giraffes, elephants, turtles, even an orangutan. He then calculated the ratio between the humerus, an arm bone, and the femur, a leg bone, for each of these different animals to see if it could be used to predict mass. And I found that they were remarkably consistent. And I guess our assumption is that somewhere along the spectrum of living animals, uh, dinosaurs are likely to fall within that. Nick recently published a paper comparing these two methods, reconstruction and the limb measurement method. Although the two methods for a long time were sort of pitted against each other, uh, we've sort of come to find that for the most part, actually, they agree. Most mass estimates of the two approaches converge on very similar results. The research that paleontologists like Maria and Nick are doing is certainly helping us get a better image of the ancient world. 
but a lot of their work also helps answer questions about deeper ecological processes. Nick's research, for instance, is helping to shed light on the evolutionary history of dinosaurs. The first dinosaurs start off at one body size, kind of the size of a large dog, and then they radiate very quickly so that within, you know, the first 10 or so million years, you've already reached most of the size range that dinosaurs would continue to have for the rest of the revolutionary history. It wasn't a gradual thing. It was very explosive. This kind of quick change is called adaptive radiation. And uncovering more about how it happened to dinosaurs isn't just about the ancient world. It can also teach us things about animals today. For example, how they might adapt to changes or shocks to the environment. In a similar way, Maria McNamara's work on melanin, that type of pigment left behind in fossils, has also led to some surprising insights about the modern world. She found that melanin, it turns out, isn't just found in skin and feathers, it's also present inside the bodies of different animals, from birds to fish and even mammals. In some species, we've up to 10 times more melanin inside our body than in the skin, in our skin and feathers. And we're coming to suspect that what it's doing internally is actually really vital in terms of uh, metabolizing toxins, especially metals derived from the environment. Because we found that the melanin in different organs has a different metal signature. There's no clear reason for this, except that, you know, the melanin in different organs is good at detoxifying different metals. It's mind-blowing, really. You know, we're learning about aspects of how our bodies work that we never could have predicted 10 years ago. And it was stimulated by this work on fossil color. At least for me, I think it's super cool that studying animals that lived hundreds of millions of years ago can help answer some of today's questions. But fundamentally, I still kind of want to know what dinosaurs look like. So I asked Maria if she were to redo all those old dinosaur books that she found at her grandma's house, what would she change? Number one, we would be incorporating dinosaurs of many different sizes. We would be including birds because we now know that birds are just a type of dinosaur. They simply are the only group of dinosaurs that survived the end Cretaceous mass extinction. We would be showing dinosaurs flying and we would certainly have dinosaurs with some evidence of what they looked like and not just artists flights of fancy and we'd be talking about warm-blooded dinosaurs and also other things you know we preserve dinosaur eggs now we know that they took care of their young um i think it would really help bring them to life actually and make them much more tangible not these weird unknown ferocious beasts but actually in many ways, a lot more familiar to what we see today. So this is what we think dinosaurs look like in 2021. But I guess in 100 years from now, it could all be different again. One of the things that was really interesting to me that both Maria and Nick mentioned was that a lot of this stuff really depends on finding more fossils. You can only do so much with what you got and you just need more stuff to work with. So uh, hopefully they all have some good luck digging in the future. If you'd like to read more about Maria and Nick's dinosaur discoveries and also a conversation article about some new research just published this week about pterosaurs, you can find links in the episode show notes. 
If you're hungry for some more compelling discussion about the latest scientific breakthroughs, check out a podcast called New Scientist Weekly. I actually just listened to the recent episode where the team discusses some new results from the Fermilab particle physics experiment about unusual behavior of subatomic particles. Each week, a panel of journalists from New Scientist and their guests discuss the biggest news in science from the environment, health, technology, or space. It's a fun and really informative listen. So go search for New Scientist Weekly wherever you get your podcasts or head to newscientist.com forward slash podcasts. Okay, and now on to our next story, and we're headed to Israel. For the last two years, Israel has been in the grip of a slow-moving political crisis. ...talks between Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz have failed to deliver an agreement on a unity government between the two parties. With multiple elections failing to produce a stable government, Israelis voted in their fourth election in two years on March 23rd. This time, the election was dominated by two main issues, coronavirus and the corruption trial of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, which actually began a few days after the election. Okay, breaking news to bring to you. Israel's attorney general has indicted Benjamin Netanyahu on multiple corruption charges. The result was once again deadlock, with no obvious majority. It appears that his Likud party and its allies are likely to fall short of a parliamentary majority. And now Netanyahu has been invited by the Israeli president, Reuven Rivlin, to try and form a government by early May. What happens next will have wide-reaching implications for the Palestinians and the wider Middle East. I've been speaking to an expert in Israeli foreign policy to understand what's at stake. My name is uh, Dr. Amnon Aran. I'm a senior lecturer at City University of London. And uh, my main areas of interest and research really lie in foreign policy analysis and the foreign policy of uh, Middle Eastern states. It's been three weeks since Israelis went to the polls on March the 23rd. What is the situation as we're talking today? And are we any nearer to having a new government? So this is the fourth election in two years in Israel, which really reflects a very profound uh, political crisis that has engulfed the country. In this fourth election in two years, uh, we have effectively reached uh, another political impasse. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been leading what is defined in Israel as the centre-right group of political parties. But together, those parties have only reached 59 seats, which in the Israeli Knesset, the Israeli parliament, uh, does not amount to the 61 majority uh, that is necessary out of 120 seats. The opposing side, a group primarily of centre-left parties, with some parties from the right, who refused to sit with Mr Netanyahu, have not been able either to amass the necessary majority to create a coalition of 61 or more members of Knesset. So where we are at now is that Mr. Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, received the mandate from the President, the first go, if you like, to form a uh, coalition government. He will have the opportunity to try and do that and somehow cross the line of 61 members of Knesset or members of Parliament. And initially he has 28 days to do that. So these coalition talks are still going on. We've we've got nearly a month to go. Where does the balance of power lie now and with who, which politicians? So interestingly, um, the balance of power in the negotiations over government, if you like, lies, I would say, within three key politicians. First and foremost, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has uh, the largest party in the parliament, uh, his party Likud, 
consisting of 30 seats and by far the largest party in parliament. The other important politician in this story is Mr. Yair Lapid. Following a 30-year-long career in journalism, activist and at the time Friday Night News host Yair Lapid announced his entry into politics and the formation of the Yeshatid party, meaning... He is the leader of Yesh Atid, which in Hebrew means there is a future. He is the unanointed, if you like, leader of the center-left uh, group of parties in Israeli politics. And were Mr. Netanyahu fail to uh, form a government, there is a strong possibility, although not a conclusive one, that Mr. Lapid would get the second chance. The third politician, who is very important in this story, is Mr. Naftali Bennett. Wilderness to Kingmaker. Naftali Bennett might be holding Israel's political future in his hands. He is the head of the Yamina party, which in Hebrew means to the right. And he is one of the few politicians who did not commit before the elections who he would be willing to actually share the government with. So therefore, at this point, he is really at the point of kingmaker in these elections. And much lies on the decisions that he will make. In his orientation, he and his party are positioned squarely in the right of the Israeli political spectrum. However, if it is shown that Mr. Netanyahu cannot, under any circumstances, form a government, Mr. Bennett will face a serious dilemma. Does he join the centre-left and go against much of the grain of his ideology and his supporters to avoid a fifth election, as he promised in the campaign? Or another possibility that we might see is that prolonged negotiations do not produce a government which leads Israel straight into a fifth elections within just over two years. Obviously, what happens in Israeli politics is closely watched in the wider region um, and the world. Your research has actually looked into this uh, relationship between domestic politics and foreign policy historically in Israel. Are there any things that we can learn from what's happened before with that interaction about what might happen next? Yes, yeah, so you're right, Gemma. I, in, a, in a recent book that I published, which is titled Israeli Foreign Policy Since the End of the Cold War, I really examined the interlinks between domestic factors and Israeli foreign policy. And I think looking back, there is one perhaps clear message, clear lesson that we can draw. Mr. Netanyahu has, over the last 12 years, led a series of governments, consecutive governments, that I describe in the book as adopting a foreign policy of entrenchment. And what that means in a nutshell is that Israel can make peace with the Arab world, but this peace will be peace in exchange for peace, as opposed as peace in exchange for territories that Israel occupied or seized during the 1967 Arab-Israeli wars. The second policy is that any peace process or even peace agreement would rest not on ideas of reconciliation, but rather on a convergence of interests and on keeping Israel's military might intact. And the third pillar, really, is that peace with the Arab world, especially, does not necessarily involve resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In fact, Mr. Netanyahu's government and certain Likud governments before him purported the argument and indeed pursued a foreign policy whereby Israel would forge peace agreements with the Arab world, not in exchange for land, but just peace for peace. And this is really what we have seen 
during Mr. Netanyahu's reign in the Abraham Accords, and something that Mr. Netanyahu spoke about repeatedly. Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain signed a trilateral agreement at the White House today. It was also signed by U.S. President Donald Trump. Dubbed the Abraham Accords, it formalizes the normalization of Israel's already warming relations with the two Gulf states. The Abraham Accords are resting on the assumption that peace would be signed in exchange for peace, not territory, and that the Palestinians would not necessarily have to be part of uh, that peace cycle. The jewel in the crown of the foreign policy of entrenchment would be to sign a fully normalized peace agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia without resolving first the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. My anticipation would be that that would be the foreign policy effort towards the Arab world should Mr. Netanyahu continue in power. He would, of course, have to reckon with the fact that the Saudis have mentioned time and time again that until the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is resolved, they will not sign a fully normalized peace agreement uh, uh, with Israel. That policy of entrenchment, if Netanyahu does come out on top in, in these coalition talks, you see that that continuing. But it's not the only foreign policy stance that Israel has has had over the past 30 or 40 years. So what other options might be available if, if it decides to move away from, from that entrenchment policy? So a second foreign policy stance that is available to an Israeli government is what I call Israel's foreign policy of engagement. The idea that, that really Israel's foreign policy of engagement rests on has, if you like, three components. The first is that the Israeli occupation is against the Israeli national interest, and therefore peace agreement with Arab countries or the Palestinians should rest on an exchange of land for peace. The second component was that actually Israel would put a premium on diplomacy in its interaction with the Middle East rather than put premium on the use of force. And then the third really component is the assumption that the occupation of Arab lands by Israel is not necessarily serving Israel's national interest. And that again was the background of rethinking the Israeli occupation slash presence in South Lebanon, which of course began in 1982 and then ended subsequently in 2000, and Israel's occupation of the West Bank, and until 2005, the Gaza Strip. So this foreign policy of engagement really starkly contrasted with Mr. Netanyahu's and Mr. Shamir's foreign policy of entrenchment. What do you think will be the three key foreign policy issues um, for the next government, whichever it may be? So I think the first issue for the next government will be the relationship with the United States. Mr. Netanyahu and his government were seen as very closely associated with Mr. Trump's administration. Israel has no better ally than the United States. And I want to assure you, the United States has no better ally than Israel. There is, of course, a question about whether Mr. Biden's administration will prioritize the Middle East and Israel in the same way that Mr. Trump's administration has done and will continue and provide this stalwart support that the U.S. traditionally uh, has done. The second item will be the conflict with Iran. There is still existing escalation. It was a sabotage that took place at Iran's nuclear facility in Natanz. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that Israel is engaged in a massive task of preventing Iran's nuclearization. We've seen that only yesterday. If the reports that suggest Israel was behind the attack of the Natanz facility are correct, 
you know, this dyad, this bilateral relationship between Israel and Iran will certainly be high on the agenda of any Israeli government. And then the third one is really the relationship with the Arab world. And there are two elements for that. One is whether it is possible indeed to expand the framework that was adopted with the Abraham Accords and to roll it out to other Arab countries. But of course, the other element that contrasts to that is Israel's relations with the Palestinians. And the most immediate issue that will concern any Israeli government are the upcoming elections in the Palestinian occupied territories. And of course, the results of those elections are at the moment entirely unpredictable. Thank you very much, Amnon, for being our guide through all that. And it's been great to talk to you about that and your research. Thank you. Yeah, um, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You can find a link to Amnon's research, plus some other recent expert analysis of the aftermath of the Israeli election in the show notes. And keep following the conversation for more on the political situation in the region. To end the show, we've got a message from Eva Catalan, culture editor at The Conversation in Spain, with some recommended reads. Hi, this is Eva Catalan. I'm the editor of the culture section based in Madrid, Spain. One of the articles that we have this week takes a look at vaccines from a mathematical perspective. The article has been written by two researchers from the field of statistics, Virgilio Gómez Rubio from the University of Castilla-La Mancha and Anabel Forte del Tel from the University of Valencia. It's a very straightforward explanation of what it is that we talk about when we talk about the risks associated with vaccination. First, they show the numbers, uh, then they show what they mean in statistical terms, and then they put them in the context of the pandemic and the secondary effects of COVID itself. I think understanding what it is that we call a rare or a very rare secondary effect is, is an excellent tool right now to make sense of everything. The second article I would love to recommend has to do with linguistics and social media. It's an article I've been working on with uh, linguistics professor Maria Naira Rodriguez from the University of Las Palmas in the Canary Islands. Professor Rodriguez has been exploring the relationship between the use of the language and the amount of followers on social media. For this, she has been analyzing the ideolect of a group of online celebrities. An ideolect is the particular way of using the language that is different to each person. And she has found some interesting clues into what maybe could be considered to be part of the key to the success of these influencers. For example, they tend to use a lot of abstract nouns that relate to emotions and feelings. It seems that whether intuitively or knowingly, influencers have learned to use language to their advantage. And it's not all about these stunning photos or cute videos. That's all. Thanks for listening. Eva Catalan there in Madrid. So that's it for this week. Thank you to all of the academics who've spoken with us for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or of course, email us at podcast at theconversation.com. If you want to learn more about any of the things we talked about on the show, there are links to further reading in the show notes, where you can also find a link to sign up for our free daily email. Thanks to The Conversation editors, Abby Beale, Jonathan Est, Eva Catalan and Stephen Kahn for their help with this episode. And thanks to Alice Mason, Imriel Morgan and Sharae White for our social media promotion. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend, Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. And I'm Dan Marino. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>